Hey Purpose Finders, Archie here with another episode of the Discovering Purpose podcast. And I know you might be like, Archie, where you been at? Well, the boy has been working on himself and putting in some work, man. I got some stuff lined up for the future that's honestly been really, really beneficial and it wouldn't have came through without me actually putting in some work. So the boy had to take a little, little sabbatical, but I'm back. All right, and we're back with the next wave of episodes. And honestly, this season, I'm gonna call it season two, is pretty stacked up and I'm very excited about it. Today's episode is going to actually have my mentor, Tim Adams. So Tim Adams was a strength and conditioning coach for teams you might know like the Denver Broncos, the Oakland Raiders, as well as the LA Kings. And currently he is a consultant in which he goes about helping, I mean, athletes, performers, businessmen, I mean, he's got guys like Usher Raymond that he's worked with. And what he goes about doing is helping them on a holistic basis of making them better performers, whether that's nutritionally, whether that's physically, and whether that's mentally. A lot of dope stuff. And because there's so much information and content within this episode, we made a part one and a part two. So I'm really excited for you all to get some of this knowledge. All right, he dropped some really, really good gems. So with that being said, it's enough of me talking. We don't have to hear me anymore. I'm about to introduce Coach Tim Adams, and let's drop this intro music. Hey guys, how you doing? Uh, Tim Adams is Archie said, and uh, I've been honored to to be able to work with Archie. Uh, as you know, listening to his podcast, the way he asks questions and what he's doing, uh, that he's a pretty special individual. And I was very fortunate to uh, to be able to get linked up with him. And uh, as Archie said, yeah, I've I've been in the human and sports performance realm for the past thirty years. Um, I went to the Air Force Academy, pl- played football for a couple years, tore up my knee and um and kind of got into coaching at that point in time and uh and that kind of led to this this quest if you would of of trying to learn from the best and and i learned pretty early about that when i was in high school i was a a senior in high school and it was my senior semester spring semester and i was running track and had really bad shin splints and my coach was like well you know pick a field event and I was like all right well so I picked a discus and I didn't uh I, I didn't know how to throw the discus we didn't have a field events coach and our, our rival high school team um was the best in the state like his he was the best coach in the state and yeah. um I, I I scratched uh walking through the front of the uh the ring to to throw my first discus and I'm like, I haven't even thrown yet. How can I scratch it? Like, well, you're not supposed to walk through the front. And I'm like, oh, I had no idea. That's how bad it was. And and I see Coach Royder and I walk over to him. I go, hey, Coach Royder, would you you be willing to uh, teach me how to throw the discus? And he looks at me and he goes, you know, I I coach for the rival high school team. And I'm like, I know, but like, you're the best in the state. And and he said, well, if your coach says yes, which my coach was our football coach and he looked like Popeye and he'd get mad and veins would pop out and spit when he talked. and I would sheepishly go ask him and he goes, you know, that's a great idea. And so every, every day after school, I'd go down and, and I'd, I'd uh, learn from coach Royder. And, and for the first week, I didn't even touch a disc because it was all footwork. And then yeah. the second week I started to get one in my hand and it just started flying out of my hand. And every, every day it just 
got better and better and better. And, yeah. and like, literally in three weeks, I went and I, we, I won the district. I beat his guys and I qualified for state. And I, that was the moment in my, my life that I, I really realized the importance of learning from the best. Yeah. And so when I, when I got into coaching and wanting to learn about coaching, I was, at, I was still at the Air Force Academy and I was pretty good at Olympic lifting. And so I went down to the, the Olympic Training Center, which was in Colorado Springs and uh, started learning from Dragomir Ciceroen, who is, the, who, who is the, the national Olympic lifting coach. And, um, and then I'd bring that back. And then I got a master's in exercise science and I would, I would be taking, and all of our teachers were like, sports scientists or coaches with the Olympic Training Center. And, and so I would, I would take what I learned at night and I'd just bring it back and I'd apply it. And I'd be like, yeah. how can I, or how could I apply yeah. this yeah. to my programming? How could I apply it to my coaching? How could I apply it to whatever? And I just had this unabashed um, ability to try and yeah. fail. And I failed, boy, did I fail. Like I, I remember I got certified in some soft tissue techniques during this time. And, and I remember when I first started doing it, like I was making guys bleed. That's how bad I was at it. And yet they would, they would come back the next day going, Oh my God, I felt better do it again. And I'm like, there's a big scab there. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're like, I don't care. And, 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 and then that forced me to say, all right, I gotta, I gotta figure out how to get better. And, yeah. and so then I, I, again, would find out who's the best at this particular technique. And then I'd go spend time with them. And that's, I did that when I wanted to learn about speed. I did it when I wanted to learn about programming. I did it when I wanted to learn about sports psychology, mental conditioning, whatever I was interested in, I would try, literally I traveled the world and spent time with these individuals. And yeah, it was yeah. the, it was what accelerated my coaching more than anything. And then taking that, bringing it back and then applying it. And I was very fortunate because I had, uh, coaching at the Air Force Academy, you know, you, you get, we had like 700 um, intercollegiate athletes come through our, our facility in a four hour period of time. Yeah. And that's really unusual for a college program. And it was just allowed you to have a tremendous amount of volume of coaching, of taking reps, of yeah. allowing you to do things. And when I got out of that, I, my client base dropped significantly. Uh, first started working with figure skaters yeah. and, and then I got picked up by the Broncos and, and then the season after that, and I did their off season speed training. And that's a, a, a pretty remarkable story in and of itself because in May of 98, so this is how old I am in May of 98, I, um, I, I, I leave the military. I was, yeah. I was coaching at the air force Academy, but I was an officer. Gotcha. And so I, I got a non-volunteer assignment for those who understand the military uh, they gave me an option, go buy, go buy missiles for, for the Air Force in LA or get out. And I was like, well, I'm going to separate. So I separated yeah. and uh, started my own business. Um, and I had no idea what I was doing because I, yeah. I basically went from high school into college and I was getting paid to go to college at the academy. And then I got out of the college, had a job lined up for me yeah. and, uh, you know, just did what I did and yeah. didn't really think about how to bring in money. <laughs> so when I actually had to figure that out, that was a, that's a whole nother story. Yeah. But anyway, uh, long story short, um, when I went to learn about speed, I was like, well, who's the fastest guy in the world? And in 1998, the fastest guy in the world was still Ben Johnson. And I was like, even though he had a marked or marred record, mm -hmm. I was like, you know, somebody must've known something working with him. So 
I was like, well, who's this coach? And it was a guy named Charlie Francis. And, and I was like, well, I don't know Charlie Francis, but I asked around and I knew a guy who knew a guy who knew Charlie Francis. And in a week I'm sitting in front of Charlie Francis. And it was, it was amazing. And, and, you know, this was pre internet, pre Google searching and, 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 um, I, I really utilize my ability to network, yeah. utilize my ability to, to be unabashed and yeah. ask. And um, I never, never been afraid to ask. Yeah. And um, I, mm, I'm glad you said that. Yeah. And, and, and it's, and, 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 and it's, it's a really interesting thing because I don't see that very much today. Yeah. And, and it's something I preach. It's like, yeah. it's something that made my career. And so I go spend uh, time with Charlie and, and, and learn, start to learn from him. And then I bring that back and I start utilizing it with my, my guys. And, and at, at first I was horrible, like, uh, just over queuing, yeah. um, uh, which, which wasn't it. It's that in and of itself is an interesting part of learning. Like I love the learning process. I love the yeah. development process. And, and when you first learn something, it's really ugly. It's, it's yeah. tough. It's not comfortable. Um, and a lot of times that's why people don't like to make it through that. That's yeah. probably the point in time that most people quit because it's uncomfortable and you don't feel like you get it. And, and, and then it gets, you know, I wouldn't say comfortable, but it gets a little easier. And then yeah. all of a sudden it gets to the point where you have that competence and, and um, I, I still didn't have the competence, but I'm just banging away at these guys and I'm taking tons of reps. I mean, every day I'm, I'm coaching some form of speed training. And, and uh, in that summer of 98, uh, a kid named Obadaly Thompson breaks a world record uh, but it was wind aided, but I was like, holy smokes, all right, who's his coach? And so I find out a guy named Dan Paff was his coach. And um, I was reaching out to him, trying to find him, trying to track him down. And again, remember, like, I'm going and no looking You're at walking. <laughs> walking, yeah. And, and well, but I'm also like, I'm, I'm going to the library yeah. and doing searches yeah. to see if he's written any papers and he had. And then I found out all right, he's coached for the, uh, the University of Texas. And so then I find out he's at, he is at the University of Texas. In August of 98, um, I'm at the Academy Fieldhouse and there's an all-comers track meet. And sure enough, Texas was there. And I see this guy with a Longhorn t-shirt on and I make a beeline for him. Yeah. So I'm working in the corner with our, the Academy kids that were like uh, drafted for the NFL or trying yeah. to make the NFL team. And so I, I, I beeline for this guy and I'm like, do you know Dan Paff? And he looks at me and goes, why? I go, well, see those guys over the corner. I'm, I'm coaching how to be fast yeah. and I need help. And he looks at me and he goes, yeah, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, well, that's why I, and he, and I go, that's why I need to see Dan. And he yeah. goes, he goes, oh, okay. I see. I go, well, where is he? He goes, well, you're talking to him. And that's so awesome. we hit it off and he invites me the next week down to uh, the university of um, well, it's University of Houston uh, yeah. track meet. And um, I think it was at Houston. It might've been Rice. I can't quite remember. Um, but he goes, come down to meet Tom Telez. And Tom at the time was coaching Carl Lewis. And so, yeah. so now there was, there was a period of time in, in nine, my 98 mm -hmm. where I, I, had, I had met um, Charlie Francis who, who coached Ben Johnson. Who, and and I, I want to point this out too because this is a pretty remarkable feat. Ben Johnson's fastest time was 972, I think it was. Um, it fast. And and even though even though it was pharmacologically aided, that time hadn't been beat for like 30 years. Yeah. You think about Bob Beeman's 
longest jump, it, it was very remarkably similar of a feat. Like nobody had even come close to 972, not even close. And, and um, that just shows you, I mean, yeah, obviously pharmacology benefits people, but don't kid yourself. It's not like there's other people uh, in that realm in pro sports mm-hmm. that aren't pharmacologically aided. I mean, it's, it's part of the game. Yeah. Um, and whether you like it or not, it's part of it. Yeah. Um, so that that's just a feat that I, I that stands out, which to me is super remarkable. Even even though Usain Bolt has you know obliterated that, yeah. it's still remarkable. And now you look at Usain Bolt, Usain Bolt, and it's like that's remarkable in and of itself. Yeah. Right. So anyway, so in '98, I had uh, learned from Charlie Francis, Dan Paff, and then now Tom Pelez a little yeah. bit, and so. Charlie had the gold medalist who then got stripped away. Dan Paff, um, well, no, Tom Telez had Carl Lewis, who was yeah. the silver medalist, then the gold med- then became the gold medalist. And then Dan Paff coached the, the other two guys that came in third and fourth, and yeah. then became the second and third. And so in a short period of time, I was working with probably the top three speed coaches in the world. And, and it and it changed my my life because then in in March of 97, 99, I get a call from the Broncos and they're like, hey, come do our off-season speed training. So you have to do So in a, not even a year, it wasn't even a year where I changed my competence in such a dramatic way yeah. that I, I, I got, that's how I got into the NFL. Yeah. And, um, and, then, and then because I was different, once I got there, the following off season, I end up having like 20 of the Broncos be my clients yeah. and then they get traded, they get, you know, go to different teams. And next thing you know, I'm still more work for you because then you can, yeah, yeah. I, 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 that's how I, that's how I ended up getting so many clients in the NFL is because yeah. one guy got traded and then he'd introduce me to three or four guys at a team. And next thing you know, I'd have pockets all over the it's country. And, and it was, it was the, the business model was a little rough because I, I would travel, I spend, you know, two to three days in one city. Then I'd go to another city for two to three days. Then I'd come home for a day and yeah. then I'd go to two to three more days. I'd spend it in another city and another city. And then I'd make yeah. the move again. And, and it was, a, it was, it, it was a challenging um, several years of just but grinding it out. That's a lot of growth. And that's like a, that's a big experience that not a lot of people probably at your age will probably ever get to be able to travel from team to team, to team, to team. And especially yeah. if you're getting word of mouth, like word of mouth is the best type of referral you'll ever get because that shows you got yeah. like, you got something backing your name at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's how it is today. Like I'm, right. I'm leaving tomorrow, flying right. out to a city, yeah. going to be in that city for a day. Then I fly yeah. to another city the next day. And that's, and that's how, you know, it, it, it works. And, yeah. and, you know, I went from, um, no, no clients to having about eight guys in yeah. four different cities, just, just like that. Yeah. After going after them. So, and that's a, that's another aspect of, yeah. of to talk about, but anyway, my, my point being is like, like, when you learn from the best, yeah. it's going to take years off your your coaching. It's going to take sure. years off your skill set. Sure. If if you take what they say and you apply it, yeah. And if you don't do something with it, it just ends up sitting in your head, and and you don't you don't master the skill of it, and you don't and you don't even know then when and where you can utilize it. And that's the sure. other piece of it is because what works for one person doesn't necessarily work for another. And, and this is, we were kind of talking about this a little earlier before you started recording. And that is like, 
it, it, just because something works for somebody doesn't mean it works for everybody. Yeah. Now, look, that you can look at the bell curve and you can know about yeah. 68% of the population can, can really probably handle very similar methodology, yeah. programming, technology, and even possibly coaching. Yeah. But then you, you, as you get to the outliers, they do not respond in the yeah. same way. Now, of course, they respond from a physiological, psychological perspective yeah. to stress. Yeah. But what requires and what causes the stress is way different than these other people. And so you have to learn how to manage that differently because they'll respond differently. And also, you can drive them into the ground a lot faster as well. Yeah. So if you're not careful, uh, you could actually do more damage than, than more harm than good. Yeah. That's deep. I never thought of that one. Oh. Anyway. So, like, okay. So, you, you've gone like from from like point like a from from working or being in the military from being all the way to like where you are now mm-hmm. and like for this podcast like i'm i'm really big on the whole aspect of like purpose how people find it like because that's that's its own different type of beast yeah okay i, so didn't, like, I didn't i didn't talk about that no no you're good you're good i just want to ask you like how would you define purpose and like what would you say Hmm. How, yeah, how would you define purpose and what's been like your, your purpose from like that time you graduated till, till now? Wow. That's a great question. Um, so I don't have, I, I don't have like a, a running definition. No, don't be philosophical. Like, yeah. like this is about like, you can be as honest, yeah, yeah. blunt, like I, I'm all for it. Yeah. So, uh, for me, purpose is clarity in direction. That's yeah. what it is to me. And, okay. and that clarity for me came very early in my career. Like okay. I, I, um, there's, there, there was, there were definitely, um, these pivot points for yeah. me, these, these moments of decision that I had to make when I was, um, so I was an all state football player in yeah. Colorado. Not, I, I'm, I'm not saying that to brag by any means because it's Colorado. And I went to a division two school, a division two. I went to a two a school. We had four at the time uh, we had four, four levels of, of, of schools in Colorado, one uh, a up to, to four a. And I was, we were at two a, and it was a small yeah. school. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not taking anything away from me, but I'm also trying to be really honest that, you know, Colorado football is not Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida, or California football. Yeah, it's yeah. not. Um, <laughs> and, and, and look at me, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I, I was, I'm five foot eight. I, I like to say five foot nine on a good day. Um, <laughs> and that's in my shoes, maybe. Um, and I was a hundred and like my senior in high school is 150. Yeah four pounds and uh, played a couple years in college at hundred and uh, I was like 160, um, two to 68 pounds. Yeah. If I was lucky, I, I, I love, I was, I was an all state linebacker. And there's the other aspect of it. I was a linebacker, all state defensive player, but I got recruited to play running back and mm-hmm. I was not a good running back at all. Um, but I happened to be on a backfield with, the fastest white guy I've ever seen to this day, yeah. to this day. Like, and I'm, I work with fast white guys in the NFL. Like there, there there's, there's some fast athletes that I work yeah. with. He is by far still to this day, probably the fastest white kid I've ever been around. He led the rushing 
yards was the, I mean, I think in, in high school, he ran a, a nine, nine something um, like legit, honestly, fast kid got drafted by Detroit played for, in the NFL for a, a, a several years. He got, like he was, he, whenever he get the ball, like yeah. he was guaranteed, you know, I think he averaged five, six yards a carry. That's ridiculous. But when I got the ball, I averaged like 10 yards a carry <laughs> <laughs> because nobody expected me to have the ball. And I always did a misdirection. And so like, I, you know, it was ridiculous. Yeah. My numbers looked really good, but it wasn't because I was a good running back. It's just yeah. because nobody expected me to have the ball Yeah. Uh, because I, I'd rather hit you than run away from you. And that was my problem. And like somebody come and I just like, I'd go hit them. <laughs> it was bad. Anyway, um, I, I tore my knee. Uh, so I went to the Air Force Academy prep school for a year and um, did really well. Super excited about playing for the Academy. But yeah. that winter I go home and, and we went skiing with a bunch of my buddies and uh, tore my ACL. Um, that changed everything because... Uh, I had to do a quick fix surgery uh, to get into the academy the following year. And um, in basic training, my knee, uh, my, my surgery failed when I was climbing a rope. I'm 20 feet up in the air, just my, my rope, rope's wrapped around my foot. I go to push off and my, my tibia dislocates and ends up in front of my femur yeah. as I'm 20 feet in the air. And, and so I, I slide down, my hands are burning, I hit the ground and my knee pops back in. And it was at that moment that I was like, Ooh, this isn't good. Yeah. I went from being like one of the top cadets in basic training to like, I disappeared, like mm -hmm. completely disappeared off the face of, of the Academy. And, and I just kind of tried to become a wallflower because my knee blew up. I could barely move it. Um, practiced um, and played my first year. And, and as the season went on, my knee would start to dislocate like pretty much every other practice yeah. and I'd have to take a day off and, and I ended up getting cut from the team in spring. And that was my first realization that what I loved got taken away from me yeah. and I had to make a decision. And, and I, that's when I decided to try to get into being a student coach. Yeah. But, but I ended up getting thrown back into the Academy kind of mix, if you would, and, mm. and um, got, um, I, my squadron wasn't the kind of squadron to freshmen and they hated athletes and they tried to kick me get me kicked out. Yeah. And so it was a really tough period of time for me. And I, I, I ended up hating the Academy when yeah. I was going through it, like literally did not appreciate what I had. Yeah. I, I just, um, I'd committed to my family. I was going to do it. I wasn't going to quit. And I just kind of put my head down and disappeared into the academy. Mm -hmm. And and my senior year, um, I I I got uh, I, I was a management major, and I loved the management department. The the instructors were phenomenal, um, just really good people, good human beings. And it was kind of like my sanctuary. And I had the opportunity. I, I had to choose to was I going to fly, which was an eleven year commitment, or would I? go do something in business, if you would, for the Air Force and get out in five years. And yeah. to me, it was a no brainer. I was like, I have no desire. Like I went to the Academy to fly yeah. and play football because it was a division one school. And then I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to choose not to fly. Yeah. And I'm going to go be a, I, I thought I'd be a program manager, but I couldn't, I didn't get that. I, I became a budget officer. Yeah. And, and that was my first turning point. 
And, and I, so I actually had to go see our general, our superintendent and tell him why I, I declined to fly because they needed fighter pilots at that time. Mm-hmm. And um, I had to, to go and say, you know, flying just wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. And um, so I chose not to fly. That, that was my first turning point. Well, actually, it'd be my second because my knee was my first getting yeah. cut from the team. From that point, I, I, I really realized that, all right, if I'm going to go be a budget officer, I'm going to try to be the best I can. And so I, I, I tried to get into great program offices. And so I, I got into um, the F-22 program kind of my, my second year into being a financial, fan, a financial guy. And it was a top program in the Air Force at the time. It was like the number one program. Uh, hard to get into, but I just was like, if that's where I'm supposed to be, that's what I'm supposed to be. But I hated I hated my job. Like I hated being stuck behind a desk. I hated sitting and pushing papers. Like I I really realized that that was not my calling. Like I made a, it's not that I made a mistake, but I realized like it became very apparent that this wasn't like, was not my purpose, but it wasn't, it wasn't fulfilling me in any way whatsoever. And so I had a buddy um, say, Hey, there's an opening at the air force Academy for a, a PE instructor. And I'm like, what? I, I'm like, huh? Because I, <laughs> I, I, I tested out of all of my PE classes, so yeah, I didn't, yeah. I didn't really even. Uh, the only PE classes I had to take were swimming because I was so bad in the water, and and so I'm like, that's interesting. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna try to get back, and so I start making phone calls, get the interview, get the job, and and I get back to the academy, and I wasn't even coaching at the time. I was, I was a, I was a uh, physical education. Yeah, instructor. And I taught classes in the athletic department. But the moment I got there, I went straight to the to to the head strength coach. And I go, Hey, I'm back. I would love to volunteer to help out. And so all day I do my job. And then when when the the athletic teams came in, I would leave, leave my job and go over and volunteer in the athletic department or in in that weight room. And I did that for two years until they created a position for me because guys just kept getting stronger and, and the cleans, like, you know, again, like I was pretty good at Olympic lifting. And so one of the kids went from like cleaning 360 pounds to 400 pounds in, in like less than a week. And it was like, that's, that may or may not sound like a big deal, but at the time this kid couldn't get past 360 yeah. and all of a sudden in a, in a week's time, he's over 400 pounds. And, um, and so everybody was like, whoa, you know, all right, let's see what we can do. So they created a position for me. Yeah. And then, so in 96, I became an assistant strength coach at the Air Force Academy. And I'm, I'm teaching an adjunct business class. I'm yeah. an adjunct business professor because I have an MBA. That's how I came back is my MBA. And then I, I uh, was teaching, uh, I was an adjunct professor for exercise physiology because I was getting a master's in exercise physiology. And then I, I was teaching PE classes and I was um, a strength coach, an assistant strength coach. You were just like in grind mode at that point. You were like- well, well, It was grind mode, but it was play, <laughs> it was play for me. Like yeah. I, I tell people this, like I haven't worked a day in my life yeah. for about 30 years now. Yeah. Like, because I love what I do. Yeah. I found really early on my passion. Yeah. And my passion is performance. My passion is human performance. And, yeah. and, and this is, this will give you a little peek into the way I think. And that is, I didn't, I was so obsessed with, 
how can I make this athlete better? Yeah. Like, I, I didn't, I didn't have any uh, preconceived notions on it just has to be in the weight room or it just yes. has to be in speed or it just has to be soft tissue or it just has to be sports psychology or yeah. it just has to be this or that. For me, it was like, whatever I could do to facilitate the, the, the movement of this athlete's um, ability to perform today, yeah. I wanted to figure out how to do that. Yeah. And, and so it took me down all these different paths and, and each path was like a little spark of passion, a little, yeah. um, this, this piece where it gave me purpose for the day. It gave yeah. me purpose for the year, gave me purpose for a, a cycle, a period yeah. of time until I had it fully integrated and then yeah. something else came up and then that became my purpose. Yeah. And, and it was a purpose within a purpose, if you oh, will. For sure. And, and so my, my passion was performance mm -hmm. and my purpose ended up being, how can I be a tool to my client to help facilitate change today, not tomorrow, today. And yeah, and it was, and, and then I had to challenge myself to improve my skill set to be able to facilitate that. Like, and, and, and that was like the biggest, like, aha moment for yeah, me yeah. was when like I so my first iconic pro player was smarter at anatomy than I was yeah and and he was challenging me and he was like dude you don't even know you don't even know your anatomy like how can you how can you coach me and I'm like I don't at first I was like screw you I don't need to know it and then I'm like in my head I'm going fuck yeah, but, <laughs> <laughs> see, but like I think I think those things are like needed like you need those moments in which like and this is anybody who starts from the bottom but those moments where you start at the bottom and you really have to kind of repurpose like to reframe and like you have to like re you have to like legit ask yourself in the mirror every day like all right like are we gonna get better at this or what because if I stop then you know you I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I started at the bottom, I'd be yeah. even more wealthy than I am now, right? Like it's like, <laughs> the, it, 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 again, it's like clockwork. Like that, that yeah. is such a, you know, they're, they're, and, and, and the beginner's mind at yeah. being at the bottom is key, right? Yeah. Like a child's mind, like I've got two boys. They're, they're right now, they're 10 and 12. So they're, mm -hmm. they're in a little different phase than they were a couple of years ago. Um, but they still have this inquisitive mind in everything except school. <laughs> <laughs> See, but like, okay, even with that beginner's mind, I think the more important thing that you said was that you went to others like that were the best or like higher up and you learned from them yeah. because it's, it's okay to be a beginning learner, but you can waste, as you said, you can waste like countless amount of time Oh, yeah. If you're trying to do it by yourself, I'm not knocking people that do it by yourself. Sometimes it's just a better way to learn. But yeah. I think you learn best when you see how people go through those ups and downs, the the highs and lows that have been through like the wire that know the the techniques to do certain things, because then it gives you another perspective. And on top of that, you get to find a way like to flip it and make it yours. Yeah. And so this, I totally agree with that. And there and, and with that, there's also this this the, the dark side of that. And that is the dark side of that is when you think that you're better than the person that you're learning from. Um, some of my greatest teachers were the most humble, mm -hmm. most non boisterous 
individuals I've ever met. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, they would always redirect back to me or somebody else in the room as being way better than them. And, and it, you know, looking back at it, I'm like, now I see why they do that mm -hmm. uh, because of their humility. But I also, I also see the, the challenge of when you're in a, a position to learn. Yeah. Um, and we kind of uh, touched on this. There's a, when, when you come out of school and you're young, like um, there's, there's, a, there's this mentality that you are invincible, that, that you are great at what you do, that yeah. you've already arrived you and, <laughs> and you haven't. And I don't care who you are. I don't care how smart you are. Yeah. I don't care if you're, you know, a, got a photographic memory. Yeah. And you, you might have be book smart. Yeah. There, there are things in life that you haven't experienced and it's through experience that allows you to be able to now take what you know from a book or from research or, or uh, maybe even another experience mm -hmm. and then integrate it with the circumstances of the day. Yeah. And, and that's what, I'll, like for me, that's like why I call, I just call myself a problem solver. Like I am a glorified problem solver and every day is different. And I, and that's why I love working with a variety of different athletes. I love the challenge of working with, with something new. And um, like, I just got a call literally last week from a, a current client who was like, Hey, have you ever worked with this app, this type of athlete? I'm like, no, but super intrigued. Let me learn about it. So I'm, I'm in the process of doing research on a sport I've never worked with and, and learning about all the parameters associated with that sport yeah. that this individual is going to be required to, to uh, master in order to compete at that sport. Yeah. And, yeah. and I love that. And, and every sport I've done that with from the snowboarders I've worked with that went on to win Olympic medals to hockey, which went on to win, win a Stanley cup to any sport that I've, I've done that with, like yeah. they, they, I take, because, because I come to it with fresh eyes mm -hmm. and because I come to it with this vast experience of knowledge, I look at the, I just look at what the parameters are, but then the way I solve the problem is way different than anybody else that's approaching it because everybody else is approaching it from either a myopic perspective, a siloed perspective, yeah. never a holistic perspective. Yeah, for sure. And, and it's that holistic approach, I think, that that allows you to do things like that are mm, hard to comprehend yeah, how possible it is. Um, anyway, that, there's a lot there. Uh, yeah. No, you're good. I, I mean, like the main thing that like, I, I mean, I heard from like all that. And I mean, we talked about this a little bit earlier. Uh, it's just the fact of how, I mean, how you're saying when people think like they've arrived at that point and like the, the true wealth and knowledge of learning how to do things comes from learning from others, I think, and the experiences that you have. And then like, along with that, especially like with this year, like how crazy it's been, it's been the perfect mold to learn from as many people as you can, because you have nothing but free time. And a lot of times they have nothing but free time. And all it takes is somebody just reaching out and just having a conversation and just picking somebody's brain. So, so this is the other dark side of it too, I'm going to say, and that is like, you can get caught into yeah. learn mode. Yeah. And, and so I know so many kids that are professional learners. Yeah. They're not doers. Like 
you got to take the knowledge and you got to apply it. Like knowledge is useless. I should take this back. Information is useless unless put to practice. Like you, you have got to put it into practice because even, even learning from the best in the world, I would bring it back and I would try it with my clients and like some things worked amazing and other things like didn't work at all because this is when I started learning that, 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 that bell curve, the outliers need a different type of stimulus than the masses um, or even young kids. Like yeah. you can, you can tell a young kid pretty much to do anything and they're going to get better. Like yeah. literally you can make them go run miles and they're going to get a faster 40. Yeah. It doesn't make sense, but it's going to happen. Yeah. Like it, it, it doesn't really matter what you tell a young kid. Like, so, so when I hear all this great things about young high school kids, I'm like, all right, that's great. Yeah. But they'd get better regardless. And I'm not downplaying the guys that work with, you know, high school kids and that at all. What makes a difference though, is building, like people want the results and they want them today. And, and people skip the development piece. For sure. And so I think a lot of people um, cause individuals to lose longevity in their sport because they're going after the numbers early when they, they shouldn't even care about numbers early. They should care about developing a base, a foundation, so that then 10, 20 years from today, that kid is going to have the capacity and margin to be able to handle the load that's coming down the pipe. And nobody, I don't know too many people that think that way. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's something that's really important. So that's, that's a piece of it. And then the other piece of it is like, if I'm, if I'm in this constant mode of learning, 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 and I'm not, I'm not out getting my hands dirty. I, I can't, I personally can't figure out like the, the nuance of what's going on. I was literally, <laughs> I was literally about to say that. So for those of you, like I, I've known Tim for like a while. And one of the first things he like put me on or, or taught me was like paying attention to the nuance of the details. Yeah. Like that's like the most, like that's honestly, like you, you know, you like we had that conversation, right? Yeah. But, <laughs> but it's like, I'm glad you said that because I feel like a lot of people will get a bunch of knowledge, as you said, yeah. and they'll go out and they may try it. They maybe won't, but let's say they go out and try it and they, they mess up on it. Because again, like you said, that bell curve again, like everybody's not the same. And like when everybody's not the same, that's when you have to dive into that nuance, like the nuance of the details because it's different per person. Yeah. And like, when you get to like your high performers and things like that, like that's when you really have to dive into the nuance of the details because everybody's great at this point. Mm-hmm. Like everybody's, everybody's fast. Everybody's strong. Everybody's smart. Like, so like now what, like you need to be able to find those little two or three things within their game mm-hmm. that they can't see because to them, like they're the best of the best. You have to go about finding those things yeah. and then actually, okay, like analyzing it and being like, okay, I got to find a way to improve this, this, this in order to make them be better at that. Exactly. And, and knowing which one of those, this, this, and this yeah. is yeah. the first thing you need to address. Yeah. Because most people get sidetracked on, yeah. oh, this is so important because I read it in a book or this person said that, but they don't understand that to this individual, yeah. that's irrelevant. Yeah. And, and that see, individual needs this instead. Yeah. Right? And like, 
I'm glad you brought up that holistic approach because for me personally, like I love sports psychology, like I love studying, like I, I read the research, like I, I, I tap in, I dive in, like I love it. Yeah. But the thing about sports psychology that kind of, it doesn't bug me in a way, but it's just, it's just like my viewpoint. So I'm going to say it clearly because it's, it's my viewpoint. Like I like to look at sports psychology as like a band-aid fix to a bigger solution at points yeah. in a way, because you can only tackle one avenue. Mm -hmm. And let's say that avenue is like above your area of like report. Like you can't, you can't touch that. So like, let's say for example, you have somebody that has like the yips in baseball, you can give them um, refocus techniques. You can go about like feed them the research, doing that practice. Right. And it may work. It may not, but it, it, let's say it only works for that little bit of time. And you find out that there's way bigger issues going on at home that like, okay, we need to address. But as a sports psych, you can't really hit that, at least as a consultant. If you have your PhD, then you can go by in those areas, right? But it's just like, you can only do so much at certain points. And to be able to be like more so of a holistic approach to where you can like kind of tap into different avenues, I feel like that's where that's where sports psychology or just athletics in general, like I feel like that's where it will grow at its best. I don't know if it would take like a holistic team to do that or just one individual that just knows how to do it all. If you're one individual that can do all that, then that'd be freaking insane. But like, you know, in my head, that's just how, that's how I think of it. I'm with you. And, and that's also part of the problem with siloed approaches, right? Because there's very, there's organizations that, yeah that have connection horizontally to those yeah. silos and, and great horizontal connection. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have it, then, then you're, you're basically working independently of the rest of the organization. Yeah. And then are you talking to each other or not? And most likely it becomes an egoic thing. And, and as you know, the ego is, is, is a challenge. Yeah. And, um, and when you have territorial battles, no one wins. And, yeah. and, you know, I, I went from being, you know, a player's coach to being a coach for a team and getting, you know, behind the veil of a team and what happens behind the veil. And it's a different perspective yeah. than, than being uh, hired by an athlete to, you know, protect them if you would and serve them. Right. And so, um, even that is a disconnect, right? And then, then, but the players know it. And that's why there's, uh, you know, a player's association. That's why there's, you know, a lack of desire to be in a facility because, you know, the, at least in football, there's no guaranteed money, right? I mean, the only guaranteed money you have is your bonus. Um, outside of that, you know, someone gets a hundred million dollar contract. That doesn't mean they're going to get that hundred million dollars. Whereas in baseball, in hockey and basketball, they get a hundred million dollar contract. They're getting that money unless yeah, they yeah. do something to, to, you know, mess with the contract. Right. So yeah. it's, it's a different, it's a different sport. It's a different environment. Um, and everything from that perspective. Yeah. And, and then when I'm going to go back to this nuance thing, the only way that you can understand acquire the understanding of a nuance is to put in the reps. Yeah, right. um, you, you got to do the reps because it's through the reps that you start to see things yeah. and experience things and feel things, mm -hmm. and and when you do that, now you you create this 
framework, if you would, of, of what is possible. And, and then as long as you can stay outside of that realm of, oh, this is how it is, then you can always start to make that malleable. And it's all, and, and because if, if you can make that malleable, then there is no limit. Yeah. Like I, to me, I, I don't, I don't work in limits. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I say that and, and I was challenged recently with, with this is, this is an interesting conversation and I haven't, I haven't, I'm still working through it in my head, yeah. but it's this concept of, um, for me, I, I don't, I still don't believe that there's a limit. However, there's a genetic predisposition to being able to do something. So my point on this is if I take a marathon runner, someone who has a bunch of uh, type one muscle fibers, yeah. means he's slow twitch yeah. and I make him do speed work, I'm going to make him faster and I can, I can make him faster and faster and faster and faster and faster, like limitlessly, you know, but as, as we get to a point, yeah the 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 change in the improvement is going to diminish quite radically but will we always be able to create improvement yeah we always will but he'll never ever 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 be able to run a nine seven or a nine six or a nine five hundred he just won't yeah can he run an 11 second can he run a 10 second can he run a nine nine maybe but he's not going to be the fastest man in the world you won't be. It's a, that's going to be the container and the limit, right? But is he limited o- only in the sense of him, you know, decreasing the the amount that he can improve, mm-hmm. if that makes sense? Like, but he can always improve. Yeah. There is a container in which everybody has some capacity or or margin of improvement, if that yeah. if that makes sense. Like, and that's genetically predisposed. See, no, I agree. I agree. Not psychologically, but genetically. No, I agree. I mean, I feel like it plays in tandem, though, because I feel like a lot of people who you see don't end up reaching that potential or they get to that spot to where, like, they think they reach their cap and they don't get to that next level. Because personally, I mean, I've, I've seen it just like with athletes is this up here just screws everything up mm-hmm. a lot of times, which I think is wild in and of itself. Well, I, I, I'm under the the philosophy that I don't think anybody has ever reached their true potential. Yeah. I I don't think even even like a Sergey Bubka or a um, um, uh, what's his name? Um, oh my gosh! Who we thinking? Who we... <laughs> no, I was just thinking of the uh, the guy who broke the four minute mile at first. Oh. Uh, Ah, oh, dude. Um, over in the UK, English kid. Yeah, the English guy. Um, anyway, like he broke the four minute Bannister, Roger Bannister. Yeah. So, so Roger Bannister broke the four minute mile. The boom he did, everybody else did because it was a yeah. psychological limit, right? Um, but how much more could he have broken? I, I I don't know. But my point being is like I don't care who you are. I don't care um, if you're the fastest man in the world. Like I still believe that. Um, all these athletes, Usain Bolt could be faster. I believe he can still be faster. And I believe he could have been a lot faster when he was younger in his prime. If if you go back and look at like how he takes care of his body or how he took care of his body in the last 
probably four years or last Olympic cycle compared to how he took care of his body that 12 years earlier, like he was out partying, he was out, you know, not getting sleep. And it's, that's part of, again, the nature of it. If he would have applied what he did, like the last four years of his, his career to the first eight years of his career, how much faster would he have been? I don't know, but probably would have been a difference. Right. And so like how much, did a Michael Jordan reach his true potential? Could he have done more? Yeah, of course. Like just because he works with, you know, a great guy, a great coach, a great trainer, all that stuff doesn't mean he couldn't have gotten better. Yeah. Right. And so like that, that's where I'm at. Like, yeah, even they're the best in the world at what they do can still get better. What's up y'all. So I hope you enjoyed part one of this episode. Part two is going to be coming out next Wednesday and I'm really excited for you all to hear it. If you have any questions or maybe you just want to go about connecting with Tim, I'm going to go about posting his LinkedIn as well as his website so you can go check him out. But with that being said, I'll see you all next Wednesday. And just like Nipsey said, man, find your purpose or you're wasting there.